Welcome to this fifth episode of a Coffee Room Chat in ENT, presented by me, James Tyson. And this is a collaboration between the Royal College of Surgeons in Edinburgh and ENT UK. So today I'm very pleased to announce that our two speakers are Neil Donnelly, who's a colleague of mine from Cambridge, and Murta Hull, who is also an ENT surgeon uh, from the University Medical Centre in Groningen. Now, this podcast comes from the British Society of Otology, and Neil and Murta will be discussing the different options available for patients with conductive hearing loss, specifically looking at the different types of hearing implants available on the market, because this is a rapidly changing area. Hey, Neil. What have you been up to these days? Oh, hi, Matt. Um, yeah, I've just finished a, a case in theatre. Uh, six-year-old chap mm-hmm. with a squamous cell carcinoma of his left ear canal. Uh, fairly early, T2, N0, M0. So we've done a lateral petrosectomy. 60. 60, a six-year-old, yeah. you're saying? Oh, 60. Yeah. I'm sorry. Okay, no, yeah, that's more. Yeah, six, 60. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. And he's ha- had a free, free flap reconstruction. Um, okay. Mm-hmm. And actually just really thinking about in due course, how we're going to rehabilitate his hearing because he's got mm-hmm. preoperatively anyway, a bilateral symmetrical mild to moderate sensory neural hearing loss. And at mm-hmm. the end of the operation, everything looked, the middle ear was absolutely perfect. Uh, Stapy's still intact. So plug the eustachian tube with some fascia and put the yeah. ALT free flap on top of that. Obviously he's got to have six weeks of radiotherapy. Mm-hmm. So we don't know what impact that might have on, on his hearing, but yeah, just thinking about how to reconstruct his hearing because he's a keen musician. He's a university lecturer okay. and his hearing is pretty important to him. Mm-hmm. What mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I can understand that it's a very interesting uh, case. Yeah, yeah, good question, Neil. I think, um, uh, what did you say his hearing was, both sides? Mild to moderate high-frequency hearing loss? Yeah, mild to moderate high-frequency sensory loss. Mm -hmm. And um, um, before the surgery, um, was he satisfied with the hearing or did he experience some issues already on beforehand? No, he admitted to beginning to struggle a bit, uh, mm. which I think is going to be made worse from having a superimposed conductive hearing loss following this. Yes, off. of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, uh, he might be for sure asking for some additional um, equipment like a bone conduction hearing aid. Have you been discussing so, that this with him already, or did you? Um, yeah. Well, we discussed there were a number of options sort of long term that, mm-hmm. we, that we wouldn't leave him like that. But in the short term, you're right. That's a it's a good idea. We could put a mm-hmm. some form of bone conduction device just to give him a little bit of symmetry to see him through this process, although it might be a bit sore in that area. Yeah. And how, how is your uh, workup um, looking uh, in the preoperative setting? Do you also offer the patients also on beforehand a trial with a? Uh, headband or do you uh, really 
like you were saying, there might also be deterioration of the hearing after the radiotherapy. So that might also be a reason to wait for this uh, trial afterwards. Yeah, he'll he'll be assessed by the multidisciplinary um, hearing implant team because, as you say, got yeah. to assess that there's been no hearing loss because of surgery or uh, radiotherapy. And then mm-hmm. also, yeah, a trial with usually a bone conduction device on a, a soft band or something like that so that mm. you can demonstrate that there's benefit with and without it, which in cases like this is is quite quite easy to do. Um, yeah, the reason behind me me asking is, of course, that uh, we sometimes consider uh, putting the um, the bone implant only the first stage, so the uh, uh, subcutaneous implant without the abutment. Uh, we put it during surgery already in the patient, so um, the osteointegration can take place, and um, the radiotherapy is not influencing the. Um, the outcome of this uh, implant and then uh, after you know how much the hearing um, is if there is deterioration or not or it's if it's a purely conductive additional hearing loss on top of it due to the blind sac closure uh, then in the second stage you uh, might consider placing only the abutment in the local anesthesia um, yeah that's a good that's so a that good might um... be, yeah well, that that ship has sailed, so we we didn't do that. So uh, no, okay. <laughs> and in your opinion, with a, a sort of a moderate sensory neural high frequency mm. loss, what do you think? Something like a bone bridge? Do you think that's going to help him? Yeah, of course, it's a very interesting question, Neil. I think the there are alternatives, of course, to bone conduction hearing implants. The the fact is that they do more or less need very good bone conduction thresholds yeah. and of course the power devices nowadays are pretty good so um, if it's not deteriorating too much then of course you can still go that way but alternatives like a bone bridge or middle ear implant I think those options are of course something to consider although you were talking about a free flap so yeah so you've got a free flap on there but mm. specifically on a bone bridge I mean I don't know if he's got thresholds sort of 50, 55 dB at mm. uh, two and four kilohertz, what is that going to be helped by a bone bridge? Or, you know, at 60, his hearing's likely to deteriorate. Are we on the edge of what is able to be offered by that device? Yeah, uh, I think you're, yeah, I think you're right. And we, I think, I mean, it'd be uh, nice we, and easy, uh, wouldn't it? But yeah, but I think we also need to be critical about the audiological outcomes. I mean, the um, the reason why you put a bone bridge or any other uh, transcutaneous active bone conduction device in it is because of the fact you would like to provide better hearing. And yeah. if your thresholds are around 55 or 60, then I'm, I'm not really uh, convinced that um, this is the best way to go. I mean, the, the power devices are, of course, having some drawbacks with especially the body-worn devices. So, and I think you were saying he's a musician, so then that might be more inconvenient for him in these circumstances. So therefore, you might prefer uh, a bone bridge, but still uh, the output is um, is relevant here. So 
yeah. maybe I, I would more, if that's feasible, uh, if the um, bone conduction thresholds are around 60 decibels in this case, and on top of it, also a conductive hearing loss, and it might deteriorate due to radiotherapy. Did you also consider the, like a fibrin sound bridge or another middle ear implant, or did you discuss this already, or what's your way to go in this specific well, case? I, in my opinion, I think that the the options are between a bone-anchored hearing aid, a transcutaneous one, rather than, or um, sorry, percutaneous rather than transcutaneous, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, uh, yeah. because of of the power requirements, mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. a middle ear implant. Um, I guess there are concerns ar- around that both have their advantages and disadvantages in something. Mm-hmm like Mm -hmm. this uh you know from the perspective of a middle ear implant if there wasn't a significant deterioration in his hearing with radiotherapy then he's still got a stapes in place so that actually offers Mm -hmm. a really nice place to with uh the medell vibrant soundbridge they do that little Mm -hmm. clip prosthesis uh a little bit like the the dresden clip uh, clip the Kurtz Dresden clip that you use in acicular plasty mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. that's fantastic mm-hmm. that just uh, slots on nicely and I guess the advantage in my mind of that is good amplification ear specific hearing yeah. so you're just stimulating that cochlea rather than the contralateral side uh, mm-hmm. and anecdotally patients often report that they get a better quality of sound from the vibrant sound mm-hmm. region a, a bone anchored hearing aid but i'd be interested to hear your opinion on that but mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. the thought of going back into an ear where there is an alt free flap there and mm-hmm. having to elevate mm-hmm. that up you know there's risk of elevating the stapes that'd be a concern i guess they they shrink back back a little bit after the radiotherapy and it's whether how adherent to that underlying mucosa mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. that that would be a concern yeah i can imagine i think that those are uh, pros and cons that it's really important to discuss with your patients on beforehand and i i i think it's very um good and relevant for the patient to know all these uh, type of informations and but do you have any numbers of uh, of risks in which um you know in your experiences occurs that um, the flap gets necroded or that there is another complication after these type of surgery especially in these specific cases so if there's going to be a problem with the free flap that is mm. something that you tend to find out within the first uh, week of surgery for sure. Yeah, so and you if, would wait for the surgery. I'm, I mean, maybe take like six months in between in order to get good healing, in order to prevent these kind of complications. Yeah, I mean, I think that if you allow six weeks for sort of post-operative healing, six weeks mm-hmm. for the radiotherapy, and then three months for nhs delay then that 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 mm-hmm. sounds about right um but yeah. i mean what would your opinion be for percutaneous uh, bone anchored hearing aid so i guess either the otacon or the cochlear device in terms of the power 
ones. Yeah, in my um, because experience, yeah, you mean like the, the difference in sound between the fire and sound bridge and the no, the no, no, just in terms of their ability to rehabilitate in, in a scenario like this. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a very good question. And I think the, um, uh, the, the the nice thing about these devices is that you can try before you buy, so to speak. So yeah. um, you can, of course, That's offer them the headband trial. And, of course, you know that it's um, like getting um, uh, 10 to 15 decibels better once you have a yeah. percutaneous implant there. So That's a, that's a really good point, good, actually. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's different, I, different from the pharmacy sandwich. I mean, that's something that we uh, you need to experience after the surgery what the um, yeah, experience for the patient is and and the risks of going in to do a vibrant sound bridge i think far exceed the risks of um of doing a, a baha hmm. you mentioned that you would typically have been a little bit further ahead than i was in this case and put in the uh the sort of osseo-integrated um, aspect of it in mm. this setting. And I, I get that. That, make, that makes a lot of sense. But um, I guess in your experience, when you've had radiotherapy in this area, what, what do you see uh, that you're getting extrusion of the abutment because of osteoradionecrosis? Is that something that you commonly see or not? Well, it's a very interesting question, actually. The, um, the, the studies that we have been performing and also the literature around this topic actually shows that with the previous generation implants, you know, the ones with the smaller diameter, uh, indeed there was a, a risk of a higher complication rate or extrusion rate in the patients uh, with radiotherapy. But uh, since the uh, implants have uh, changed to a wide diameter implant, uh, sometimes with the coating as well, uh, we actually see that this number of implant losses have dropped very uh, dramatically or very to a very lower level. And uh, the effect of um, radiotherapy is minimized. So I would even say that, um, yeah, I think it's a really good development. And I would even say that, you have, for that matter, then uh, two options. Either put the, um, the implant without the abutment in during the surgery of the removal of, for instance, a tumor, um, because of the fact that you could also decide to place the implant with abutment in the same stage and afterwards have radiotherapy without any increased risks. Um, still, in this case, I have seen more infection, higher infection rate with the skin penetrating abutment after um, surgery like this in the healing process. So therefore, okay. apart from the um, radiotherapy, uh, I would still advise to go for a um, subcutaneous first stage, so to speak, implant, and then a few months later, the, the abutment. Or if you have this um, differently organized in your chain of healthcare, uh, and you ask the patient uh, to decide whether they would like to have a bone conduction device after surgery and have the trial afterwards as well, then indeed you would uh, decide for a uh, percutaneous bone conduction um, implant in local anesthesia. Yeah, 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 of course. Um, so I don't do too many uh, Bajas these days. So 
the the wide abutment how much wider then is it than the the original yeah the uh, the difference is um, <coughs> actually more or less um or actually specifically the, the diameter of the implant was 3.75 millimeters in the previous generation and nowadays it's 4.5 millimeters in diameter okay and the um yeah, the abutment length itself is, of course, dependent on the thickness of the skin. But this um, increase in diameter uh, has made that the osseointegration is far better. There's, of course, more bone-to-metal contact uh, available. And this is increasing the osseointegration. So, I mean, it's been some time since you used to have to take a dermatome and try and raise a, a nice... Uh, split skin graft and then uh, excise a you know large amount of that subcutaneous fat all the way down to pericranium mm. Uh, mm-hmm. and I'm just interested so and is there an so I, I'm aware that there are techniques minimally invasive I mean the one that I've been familiar with is making a two centimeter incision and then undermining for a centimeter anteriorly making your putting your uh, abutment there and then pulling the skin over the top but some people make a linear incision and put the abutment in the middle of that uh, but mm-hmm. I, I do you ha- I, I've no experience of this minimum this MIPS um, mm-hmm. you, is that mm-hmm. something that you have experience of um, yeah, what, yeah, what yeah indeed Any... yeah I think it's a very good question you I think you are going to the question what do you use or what do you prefer the minimal invasive or the linear incision with the tissue preservation technique is that correct or yeah yeah that i i mean i have no experience of the latter so uh just yeah i that... think it's a very good question and what we experience is that indeed with the transition from the linear incision with subcutaneous tissue reduction to uh, the linear incision with tissue preservation that we saw that the little or the less you do in the subcutaneous tissue, the better outcomes you, you see. So there's less skin reactions and less numbness and faster healing. And uh, the MIPS or any other punch technique is, of course, uh, in line with this philosophy. Uh, the thing is that it's a very straightforward and safe technique once you use the right instruments and make sure that there is adequate cooling and you use them, the 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 drills that are um, made for this type of uh, punch hole surgery. Um, And then again, if you do not have any experience with the linear incision, which is more or less like an open technique, and you uh, only have tactile information while performing this uh, uh, drilling through a cannula in a punch hole technique, then if something happens, then you need to know how to convert or how to make sure that you are still feeling comfortable. And so my um, advice would be to gain experience with the linear incision technique. And once you have experience and you are uh, an um, ENT surgeon well-trained and you do not need to necessarily train very young ENT surgeons in, or residents, uh, so to speak, um then the the punch techniques are very uh, very eloquent and very uh, straightforward they take How quick 11, is it? Uh, li- yeah that's it's what? like 3 to 5 minutes wow so that's like yeah. really quick it's you really do 20, quick yeah. you could do 20 in the morning 
(laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for um, let alone the fact that you also need to have all these surrounding factors like putting your patients on the table, shade, and uh, put a bandage on. So if if that weren't there, you only were doing the surgery, then indeed it would go very fast. But the rest of the operation time is still the same. Do you still use a bandage if you're doing that? Just a punch technique? Yeah, it's a very nice question also. And, you know, I think in the studies that we've been performing, uh, we were comparing those techniques with the linear scission technique and we didn't want to change too much uh, in order to prevent bias, of course, and to have more or less the same uh, perioperative care uh, for each patient, either in the linear scission or in the punch technique uh, studies that we've been uh, doing. Um, but since we have been gaining so much uh, experience with these techniques and see how easy and convenient they are, uh, I believe we could really uh, downsize the number of hours that we provide to bandage, which is now like 24 hours. So at least that could be less in my experience or opinion, actually, because I still use the 24 hours as a standard. Mm. Um and perhaps it could even be without any uh, bandage. Uh, but to my mind, in order to change these kind of steps, you uh, would need some prospective investigation and use the one technique versus the other and yeah. then make a decision. I mean, personally, I use bandages for very little of my surgery these days. Um, okay. But uh, that's just also a for, uh, for, for ear surgery, for like for ears, my yeah. approach. For cochlear okay, implants, for for mm-hmm. ear surgery, yeah, I don't I don't really use them. You don't but, use um, any surgery bandages anymore. Only on occasion, yeah. No, oh, that's interesting. And, and what are the occasions then? Like uh, the use of anticoagulants, or yeah, I guess if somebody's on aspirin or it's mm-hmm. been very very oozy during surgery, then mm-hmm. I might mm-hmm. do that, but not 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 routinely. So, well, you know that's been a really helpful chat for me so I can give this chap the option once we've assessed him once he's got through all of the treatment he's got to come up we can check his hearing trial him mm-hmm. with a, a, a sort of bone conduction device on soft band something like that uh, yeah and then give him the options of a, a Baja or a, or a middle ear implant and and i guess yeah. the risks associated with those that's uh yeah that's very helpful thank you no yeah, well yeah well my pleasure and of course the discussion was very interesting for me too i learned a lot as well from you so day. i think for this chat it is really nice to have these options and um have a good day neil talk to you soon again take care bye so thanks very much to Neil Donnelly and to Merzahold for allowing us to listen into their conversation today uh, and to understand more about the different types of uh, hearing implants that can be used in a conductive hearing loss. So next week we have Stuart Winter and Sanjay Sood who will be discussing how to manage patients with recurrent pleomorphic adenoma. So I hope that you'll join us then.